through February 28th, get a choice of offers from Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin, like up to 24 months no payments and no interest, or up to $1,125 off a patio door. Get details at PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. See showroom for details. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. We have a lot of ground to cover on today's program. We're going to be talking about some of the continuing violence and crime going on in Milwaukee. We're going to be talking about, well, you know, what do you do with people who haven't paid their rent for a year and a half? And surprisingly, at some point in time, maybe you have to evict them. Is that really a scandal? But we start off with a conversation about politics, and we are joined by the senior senator from the state of Wisconsin, Ron Johnson. Senator, good afternoon. Well, Jeff, hope you're doing well. I am, sir. Thank you. There's a lot of things I want to talk with you about. Before we get into some of the political stuff and all, one of the things that I think a lot of people are really noticing when they go to the grocery stores or the gas station is what's been going on with inflation lately, particularly over the last year. How do you see this? How much of a problem is it? And what can or should the government be doing to help fight it? Well, first, the first thing I notice when I walk in a grocery store, they're empty shelves. You know, there are empty slots in the shelves, which I, you know, I'm 66 years old. I've never seen that in an American grocery store. So I think the supply shortage is, is, is a big problem, and that just is part of the problem with inflation. So you have the federal government printing all this money. And listen, we have to do something fast and massive uh, during the COVID recession, but I, I kind of stopped supporting those bills because I knew – we didn't target the relief very well. Uh, every time we'd pass a new bill, there was like a trillion dollars left from the previous bill. So I always figured, well, let's spend that before we pass some more. So in, when Democrats took total control, we still had a trillion dollars left, more than a trillion dollars left, unspent from the previous $4 trillion, And they passed their $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, $700 billion not even spent till the out years. And I was warning at the time that that's going to be inflationary. It could actually cause stagflation. So you have too many dollars that we're printing, chasing too few goods. A lot of those dollars are being spent to help people and make it possible that they stay on the sidelines. They don't feel like there's not a lot of pressure for them to get back in the workforce. So we have really low labor participation rates. I know it ticked up a little bit, but we're probably about five percentage points below the the year 2000 high. So you've got every business I talk to can't hire enough people. Manufacturers can't fill out the shifts. So they're not able to fill the orders. Uh, they have all other kinds of, you know, supply dislocations, components uh, that they can't get, uh, can't import. Uh, their their raw materials are, are increasing in price, their raw materials and allocation. So we have this enormous supply shortage combined with this enormous amount of deficits of spending, printing money, too many dollars chasing too few goods. And so people are shocked. And I had a telephone town hall uh, earlier the week. And the constituents on the call are saying, you know, 7% just really understates it. Uh, I am seeing, and they're taking out the, the percent increases in different items that they were paying. And it's true. I mean, government inflation statistics, it, it's not a perfect measurement by any stretch of imagination, which is why they have different measurements. None of them are perfect. And none of them precisely measure what an individual pays in terms of increased price. But what we do know 
Uh, first and foremost is, even though President Biden said he wasn't going to tax the middle class, no, inflation is a form of taxation. It is the Democrat tax on the middle class. I mean, that we know. And the other thing, inflation hurts by far the people that Democrats purport to want to help. Seniors on a fixed income, people at the lower end of the economic spectrum, they are devastated by inflation. Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, Zuckerbucks, you know, the guy who's spent all this hundreds of millions of dollars to get Democrats elected. Uh, They're not affected by inflation. In fact, the value of their businesses has been skyrocketing with all these shutdowns. So, no, this this has been a disaster for for real people trying to live their lives, trying to take care of their families, take care of their children. Inflation is devastating for them. You know, Senator, one of the interesting things you said at the beginning was the, the, the concern you had that we were spending all this money at the start of the pandemic and it wasn't being targeted appropriately. Uh, of all places, just earlier this week, there was a story in the New York Times that talked about how how little of the Paycheck Protection Program's $800 billion really protected paychecks. They estimate that only about a quarter of the funding went to jobs that would have been lost. And that was precisely the point that you've been trying to make for quite a while. Yeah, I I think I wrote three different op-eds in the Wall Street Journal that uh, either directly talked about PPP and instituting some controls on it, targeting it better, uh, making sure that uh, people that didn't need it would actually pay it back as opposed to have it just be forgiven. None of that stuff was instituted. It was, I had to basically threatened to withhold my consent just to pass a $50 million provision so that PPP would be audited. That's part of the problem, Jeff, is everybody, you know, people that vote for this stuff, they don't really want oversight. They don't really want uh, the American public to understand how poorly these programs are actually designed, how poorly they actually work. Now, you spend hundreds of billions of dollars, there is no doubt PPP helped businesses that needed the help there's no doubt about that but we should have targeted we should have targeted our shutdowns quite honestly now that we're having all these studies saying the shutdowns literally did not help at all and by the way i wrote an article for the usa today that ran on march 30th 2020 warning about these generalized shutdowns saying we, we can't shut down the american economy and, and again take a look at the, the age stratification of risk with covid it's massively uh, targeted toward elderly population, people with comorbidities. If, if, you're, if you're a child, you, you have greater risk of serious complications from the seasonal flu than you do COVID, and yet we t- treated everybody the same. Devastated our children. A, a year's worth of learning lost. I mean, all the other pro- psychological harms being masked up, not being able to see their teachers, uh, their you know, the development of their speech being delayed. I mean, we've done so much harm to our children, and we didn't have to do it. I mean, Sweden didn't. They didn't shut down their schools. They didn't make their kids wear masks. Not one of 1.8, 1.9 million Swedish children died of COVID. Not one. And quite honestly, what I in earlier studies showed teachers actually got infected at a lower rate because kids really weren't spreaders. Um, but, again, we're, we're not following the science on this. Right. To, to that point, Senator, I know – you know, we're we're still in the midst of the pandemic. I mean, some of the signs indicate that, that maybe things are, are getting better, but we're still having a lot of conversations about, like, like COVID restrictions on children in schools. And I, I know, like you were just talking about, that's something you feel very strongly about. Yeah, we, there shouldn't be any. You know, we know kids are not spreaders of this. I mean, study after study after study, they, they don't, they're not at serious risk of this. 
So, you know, Jeff, for my event that I held in D.C. two Mondays ago, COVID-19, a second opinion, uh, one of the things I did is I turned these percentages you hear about of, you know, mortality percentages, and we're not very good at really understanding percentages, into numbers. And, and here's the numbers. Two, two different uh, infection mortality rate studies, one by CDC, one by Jeff I- or uh, Johnny Anitas out in Stanford. So if you're, and the ages are slightly different, but if you're 17 or under, according to CDC, 20 out of a million of people 17 or under would we expect to die from COVID. Under Ioannidis, if you're 19 or under, about 13. Okay, if you're over 65, according to CDC, 90,000 out of 100 would die of COVID. Under John Ioannidis, over 70, it'd be 40,000. So again, you're somewhere between 13 and 20, if you're under 17 or 19, would die out of a million, would die of COVID. If you're over 65, over 70, somewhere between 40 and 90,000. And yet we use this one-size-fits-all model. What we should have done is what Sweden did, protect the vulnerable, isolate the injured. And, you know, when it comes to, like, PPP, target it to the businesses that had to shut down that represented a significant risk of -of out-of-control spread. I've been preaching this for two years but we didn't do that. We did these generalized shutdowns. It's devastated our economy. And, and final point, over 900,000 Americans dead. The human toll, the economic devastation, the suicides, the overdoses, what we've done to our children. Can, any, can anybody look at that response and call it success? I would call it a miserable failure, yet everybody's denying reality. Like, oh, let's, let's keep listening to the exact same people that devastated people's lives, didn't save lives, I would argue, we, it cost lives not focusing on early treatment. And we're still not focusing on early treatment. Two years into the pandemic, we still don't have a protocol for early treatment. This is absurd. Senator, um, it, the, the, the media issue du jour, or this week, appears to be lots of conversation about the, the so-called alternate electors that, that came out of you know certain states, and, and that's the subject of the January 6th commission, looking at that. Um, the, the screaming headline in the local newspaper this week was, Ron Johnson participated in a January 4th, 2021 session at a Trump hotel on the potential delay of the election certification. What, what was that all about? First of all, I don't believe that was ever discussed. They were talking about, uh, you know, what machines might have done. And by the way, in, in my hearing on examining the irregularities of the 2020 election, and there were irregularities, observers not being able to observe, you know, we doubled absentee balloting, we loosened the control. There were all kinds of things we should have looked at. Now, I, I didn't, you know, I, I talked to people on these machines, but I laid out the fact that three letters were sent to all these companies and to government agencies from Democrats, including Congressman Mark Pocan after 2016, talking about how these machines could change votes and get, you know, with Russian interference and get uh, President Trump elected. I mean, they, they weren't called crazy for just raising the issue. Now, in my hearing, I never brought up machines. I talked about other irregularities. But so, so I, again, I was, I was trying to find uh, out what was happening. It, you know, I never thought we should scornfully dismiss the concerns of tens of millions of Americans. I thought I said in my hearing, it's an unsustainable state of affairs that half the country in 2016 didn't view that election result as legitimate. Now, four years later, 2020, the other half doesn't. That's unsustainable. So my goal has always been to restore confidence in our election system that no matter who you are, Democrat, independent, Republican, no matter who wins, Democrat, independent, Republican, 
we all recognize that's a legitimate result. That's what we need to restore. I think that's a worthy goal. How do we do that? I, I don't disagree with you at all, but I mean, how, how do we do that? You're, you're right. There's a lot of people in 2016 after the election who never viewed Donald Trump as being legitimately elected president. And of course, you, you have the same thing after the 2020 election. What, as a practical matter, what, what, what can we do to instill confidence that the elections, that, that, that the people who win the elections really did truly win the elections? Well, do what I was trying to do. Be honest. Be, be upfront, be forthright, examine these things. You know, don't just say, oh, that never could have happened. Well, take a look at it. You know, what is true? You know, was there fraud? I mean, is there a problem with the ballot drop boxes? Is there a problem with ballot harvesting? Is there a problem with observers not being able to observe? Is there a problem with one billionaire media oligarch, you know, paying off or, or actually buying uh, election officials to take over their their elections in Green Bay or, or wherever. There's a problem. There. Is there, there's a problem when Milwaukee and about three or four or five other big Democrat strongholds are like the only counties, the only election jurisdictions in America that can't get their vote count in at a reasonable time. They're waiting till they know exactly how many votes they need to deliver. Now, whether anything is wrong going, you know, any wrongdoing occurring or not, it just looks suspicious. It reduces confidence. So let's be honest about things. You know, we've been told how long, Jeff, that, that voter ID is racist. There's nothing racist about it. And in fact, 80% of Americans agree with voter ID because they don't want their legitimate vote canceled by a fraudulent vote. It's just it's common sense. It's reasonable. But the media is, let's, let's, let's be honest, the media is part and parcel part of the Democrat Party. It is the communication apparatus for the Democrat Party. Most legacy media, the big tech giants, they are part and parcel of the Democrat Party. So they're going to do, they are partisan. They are no longer journalists. They're advocates. You know, when I do interviews on these shows, it's, it's not an interview, it's an argument. And that is reducing confidence. So there are so many of our institutions that have not shown integrity, that have not been unbiased, that have been politicized. And so Americans are losing faith in their institutions. That's a very dangerous point for our democracy to be in we, we would Senator, like to have confidence in our military in our health care agencies in our media but we've lost it legitimately they're real concerns senator in the course of the next couple of weeks it's anticipated that president biden will nominate somebody for the united states supreme court do you envision any way shape or form that you will end up being able to support that particular nominee well, listen, I would love to support the nomination of a judge. Someone, as Neil Gorchus said, will apply the law, not alter it. Now, do I expect that President Biden is going to nominate that type of jurist? I don't. You know, my guess is he will nominate a judicial activist. You know, somebody who's going to want to use the court to, you know, create new law, to follow their policy preferences. Uh, and those would be left-wing policy preferences so i mean I, I would i would be delighted to be surprised if he nominates somebody that really is a jurist you know a judge you know somebody again who will just apply the law not alter it uh, but i have my doubts good enough senator johnson i appreciate you spending some time with me this afternoon and i hope we can have a conversation in the very near future stay well take care take care united states senator ron johnson on a variety of issues back with more in just a minute this is jeff wagner Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
Okay, wondering what 2022 will have in store? Join WTMJ on Thursday, February 17th for a day-long broadcast on the topics that impact your everyday life. Politics, the economy, health, and more. Big issues from big names on the biggest stick in the state. WTMJ 2022, Thursday, February 17th from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Presented by Annex Wealth Management and sponsored by the Bartolotta Restaurants. Find more information at WTMJ.com. Um, here, here's the interesting Here's the interesting thing, thing about you know the, our conversation with Senator Johnson, and and I appreciate on the one hand this desire to try to clean up the elections and instill confidence in in voters that their outcome is is correct. I, I don't know that we're ever going to do that because, like I say, in 2016, it's it's true people view Donald Trump's election as being illegitimate from the beginning, and there, there was efforts. It seemed like almost to to impeach him from from the day that he was inaugurated. And now, over the course of the last year, we've had all this angst about election integrity on the other side as well. To one specific point, and I understand. I've been on my soapbox about this for a long time. I understand what Senator Johnson is saying about the what we'll call the the Milwaukee you know vote dumps, where you you go to sleep at one o'clock in the morning and you've got one candidate, typically the Republican candidate, who's way ahead in the statewide election, and then all of a sudden all these votes come in and they end up breaking 80-20 for the Democrat candidate and the numbers change. There, I mean, I think one thing we need to say is this is a problem, in my opinion, that could be easily fixed. And it's been disappointing to me that the Democrats and the Republicans haven't been able to get together on this simple issue because the, the problem is, under state law, they can't count absentee ballots until after after the polls um, after the polls close in Milwaukee. So what you need to do is you need to allow people the people in the clerk's office to when the ballots start coming in, they need to be able to start feeding them into the machines. So you're not in a situation where the polls close at eight o'clock and then all of a sudden you're sitting there with tens of thousands of absentee ballots that you then have to process and you don't have time to do. If you would allow the clerks, and I don't care whether it's Milwaukee or Dane County or Green Bay or wherever, if you would allow the clerks to begin processing the absentee ballots when when they receive them. Put in all sorts of, you know, put in whatever conditions you want. I'm just saying take them out of the envelopes, check them, start feeding them into the machines. You don't total them or anything like that. But if you would do that, then you wouldn't have one of these situations where, you know, people are, are working 12, 24 hours after the polls close just to feed in the absentee ballots that had come in in advance. So to me, this is one of those simple solutions, and it's disappointing to me that Republicans and Democrats can't agree on this one. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I was just listening to the advertisement for uh, Bob Donovan featuring former Sheriff David Clark, and it, it just reminds me how quickly... The mayoral primary is coming up. For those of you who haven't been keeping score, the, the mayor, mayoral primary is a week from Tuesday. It's February 15th. Early voting is underway now. You have um, seven candidates who are running. There's been I, I don't I don't know that you've seen a, a lot of, of advertising you know for this I, I know some of the candidates are running radio ads in limited basis and Bob Donovan's running ads on on WTMJ for sure um, I, I but this is there's not a lot of time I mean you have a number of candidates some who have some degree of name recognition candidates who've who've won different elections um, who are out there a couple candidates who've never run for anything before but it's it's 
it's coming up on, on May 15th. And anybody who tells you that they know how this election is going to turn out, I just think they're, I, I think they're very wrong because it's going to be, in all likelihood, a, a low turnout sort of primary election. So the candidates that get their voters out to the polls are going to have a very, very good chance of, of winning. And it's this short sort of season. Once you get the two candidates that emerge from the primary, I think there's going to be a lot more scrutiny of those candidates as you go from the February 15th primary into the early April election. There'll be a time to really concentrate on that. But as far as the process of winnowing the candidates down, boy, I tell you, not much time to do that as everybody tries to break through and, and convince people to go out and vote for them in mid-February. Okay, there was a story in the Journal Sentinel that caught my attention the other day. The headline is, this is the tsunami that is coming. Barada Company's flood system with nearly 800 evictions since January 1st. Milwaukee landlord Joseph Joe Barada has roared back into Milwaukee County Eviction Court as his companies filed about 795 actions this year, including at least 270 cases filed Tuesday night and Wednesday morning, according to court records. So um, Barada Properties, big, big landlord um, in in the region they have thousands of of different properties where they you know have people who rent you know from them so you've got a lot of tenants and one of the things of course that's happened over the course of the last well I mean year and a half is there have been various moratoriums on evictions if you will recall back in March March of 2020 when the pandemic first started there was a moratorium on evictions that was put into place in Wisconsin the moratorium was extended on multiple occasions by different orders and ultimately it went so that you know landlords for the better part of a year and a half it wasn't until last fall that landlords were allowed to begin evicting tenants for non-payment of rent now during the whole thing you could always evict tenants if there were I, I don't know if they were dealing drugs out of the apartment or things like that but for the the idea of tenants who did not pay it they weren't able to, to toss people out for you know over a year and a half now you know we've We've talked about this on this program before, where you're always trying to balance these things, where you've got the rights of the landlord and you've got the rights of, of the tenant. But at its heart, it's always struck me that if you are a landlord and you're renting properties, well, that that's a choice that you are making as to how you want to invest your money. You, know, you could take that money and instead of buying apartment buildings, you could... I don't know, invest it in the stock market, you could buy gold, you could do all, you could trade cryptocurrency, you could do all sorts of things, but you're making a decision saying, okay, I'm going to take my money, I'm going to invest it in, in housing, and I'm going to provide housing for people, and I'm in a situation where I, I'm looking for a return on, on my investment. Well, how do you get that return on your investment? It's, it's when people pay you, it's when people pay you the rent. Now, I know a number of people who 
were landlords, owned different properties during the course of the pandemic. And one of the first questions I always have when I would run into them is, okay, how is this affecting you? And I have to tell you, for a large number of the people that I've talked to, they said it was very little problem in that most of the people that they had rented to continued to stay current with their rent or the ones that didn't stay current, well, they, they made arrangements. They called, they made arrangements, they said, look, we, we recognize we've got an issue, and they were willing to work with the landlord. Now, there's there's a certain number of, of people who didn't do that and just went month by month by month without paying their rent. And now the problem is, quite candidly, for in many cases, these people are so far in arrears that, that they're never going to be able to catch up. And my guess is that some of the people that have just made the decision that they're, they're, they're done. They're not going to you know, pay, pay the rent, and they're going to hang on as long as they can until they are evicted. No landlord likes to evict people for non-payment of rent. Landlords are in business. Landlords want to get the rent. That, that's the whole goal of this. And, you know, an eviction process is time-consuming, it is expensive, and it's frustrating for everybody involved because until you can get the person out of the property, you, you can't re-rent it. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, so, so now apparently... We know one of these big companies that rents a lot of units in Milwaukee, people are way behind on their rent, and now they're starting the eviction process. 855-616-1620, should we fault the landlords? I mean, if people really are behind in their rent, um, and my guess is the majority of these evictions that you're seeing are people that are way behind in, in their rent and maybe not making arrangements to catch up on it, You know, is, is it the landlord's fault if they decide that they're going to evict people. 855-616-1620, we discuss in a moment. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I, I, I don't... This this article in the paper, you know, really paints this, this Joe Barada, whose company... They have like over 8,000 rental units, okay, that, that are in the area. And um, they, they really paint them as bad guys. They say, okay, they're responsible for like 18% of the evictions that are there. And the story points out about how he's a Mequon millionaire and how, you know, well, they, they dramatically cut back the number of evictions filings last fall when the moratorium was first lifted. And they worked with community groups and collected, you know, taxpayer-assisted um, payments and all that. And that, that's all well and good. But, I mean, what the company says is, look, they said, look, this is the statement. As you're aware, we believe it's in everyone's best interest to prevent and avoid evicting tenants whenever possible. But they say, in some cases, we have no choice but to start eviction proceedings against unresponsive tenants. And, and, and look, I'm sure what, what's happened in this situation is you had a lot of people who just made the decision that they weren't going to pay rent for a year and a half and now have probably fallen so far behind that they recognize that there's no chance that they're never that they're ever going to catch up so they're just not paying at a certain point you know are the landlords the bad guys when they say look we we've got to we we've got to move on we cannot continue to provide free housing for people 8556161620 Jeff how nice are the banks going to be when the landlord can't pay his mortgage because people are not paying their rent well you know that's you know, that's a, a really 
good situation. Jeff, eviction wave hasn't even started yet. When Wisconsin Energy Assistant rental assistance runs out, that's when it's really going to hit. I have several rental properties. I don't even know my tenants have jobs anymore with all the free money from the government. Well, that's going to be an issue. Jeff, we can't blame the landlords. People take advantage. There are slumlords out there as well, and they take advantage of tenants, so maybe it evens out. Well, I'm I'm not defending slumlords in any way, shape, or form, but I'm just saying that you know, if if after a year and a half you you haven't made rental payments and you're not trying to catch up and you're being non-responsive, I don't think the landlord is the bad guy by saying we're going to evict people. Just like if you if you don't pay your cell phone bill, I mean your your service is going to get turned off. If at some point in time you stop making your car payments, your car is going to get repossessed because that's just the the obligation that that you have. And I guess I look at this as being no different. I appreciate that people need places to live. I I get all that, and that's why I think, you know, if you're a landlord, that's one of the reasons why I think you need to be really careful when you're renting places in the first place because, you know, if, if you, you know, take tenants, it's very, very difficult to get them out if they choose that they're not going to pay. But this is part of the problem that's there. Um, 855-616-1620. Jeff, I wonder if there would people would be as bothered if there was a moratorium on employers paying their employees for over a year, and once that moratorium was over, people were allowed to sue their employees for back wages. Um, 855-616-1620. Jeff, I'm about to serve an eviction notice to the third person in a month up here in Manitowoc. Yeah, that's, um, you know, that's not it. Jeff, I have tenants who received six to nine months of eviction protections. They decided not to pay their rent, and now they're asking for additional monies. Well, you know, at some point in time, like I say, your phone's going to get turned off. Your utilities are going to get shut off at some point in time if you don't make payments. And I don't think it's unreasonable to expect landlords to continue to do things as well. Kathy in in Waukesha. Kathy, you're on WTMJ. Hi. I I like this topic because um, right at the start, I never understood why anybody got free rent. You know, I was out on my own since 17. Nobody ever gave me free rent. I totally agree with them evicting people, but not in winter. I, I you know, evict them in March first, but not in not in the dead of winter. No. Well, of because, course. Um, I'm sure some of them can't pay their rent. You know, I think most probably can and choose not to. But um, okay, so what are your thoughts? Well, thanks for call, Kat. I mean, I guess first of all, if you start an eviction process now, your an eviction process isn't isn't immediate. So, you know, if, if you start the court filing now, I, I've, I've no, I, I don't. I'm not. A, I'm not a landlord tenant lawyer, and I don't play one on the radio. But if you start the process now, it's not like it's going to happen in two weeks. I mean, you start the process now, and my guess is you're you're looking at sixty to ninety days down the line, if not if not more. So, yeah, you're you're starting it today, you're probably not going to actually be getting the full eviction order and being able to execute that, I wouldn't imagine, until the, the spring anyways. But, look, and, and I, I think, 
I, it's it's why, for example, you know, We Energies and the other utility companies in the in the state, you know, have these policies where you know they, they don't shut off utilities from what is it November till April, November first till April first, or November fifteenth, or what that is, Be- because again, you, you don't want to turn off the heat on on somebody in the middle of winter. So I think you have to be sensitive about that. But the bigger picture of all this is. You know, landlords have every right to be compensated for the service they're providing. In this case, it's, it's the it's the apartment that, that you're living in. And if you, for whatever reasons, you know, can't live up to your obligations, I don't think it's reasonable to expect that the landlord is going to allow you to continue to stay there month after month after month after month after month. And so at some point in time, if you haven't been able to work something out, this is what's going to happen. And I, I do go back to, I think, one of the premises that gets lost here a lot, which is evictions are a last resort. Landlords don't like to do them. They're, they're, they're expensive. Once they're time consuming and, and once you start this, you pretty much guarantee that you're, you're never going to get your, your back rent. I mean, what landlords want, just like what We Energies wants, We Energies doesn't want to turn off people's gas and utilities when the moratorium expires. We Energies wants to get paid for what they've provided. But the problem is, you know, once you, you take that step and say, we're going to turn it off, you pretty much guarantee that you're never going to get any of the dough. So I guess I was struck by the tone of this story, Mequon, Millionaire ev- evicting people. Well, it's it's a business owner who is making the decision that if people aren't paying at some point in time, you you've got to move on. Just like I think most businesses would make the decision that okay, if if customers have taken out or gotten services or goods or services and they're not paying for them, at some point in time, you're going to cut them off. If you are an employee at a newspaper or a radio station or somewhere else and your employer doesn't pay you what you are owed, you know, after a certain point in time, you're probably not going to continue to work for that employer. And I guess I see this all as the same thing. And this isn't a defense of slum landlords, and it's not saying people should be thrown out on the streets willy-nilly, but it is a recognition of this is one of the problems that's happened with the pandemic, where we've essentially prevented people, landlords in this case, from doing evictions, and sooner or later the chickens come home to roost, and that happens to be happening now. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner. So delighted to have you with us. Something really interesting going on in New York, in in the in the world of law. Sarah Palin, controversial former vice presidential candidate under John McCain, she's filed a libel suit against the New York Times. And it's if if you are a public figure like she is, it's very very difficult to prove libel. But this is an interesting case because the New York Times admits that they ran a false story about her. So the, the, the way this trial is going to play out is you, you've got the New York Times acknowledging that they wrote a story that was false, acknowledging that multiple editors looked at this story and, and let it go by, and they say they, they corrected it later on, but they admit that they got it wrong. So Sarah Palin is saying, hey, I was damaged by the story, which suggested it, it implied that I was responsible for the assassination attempt that was made on a, on a congressional candidate. The story was completely wrong. So they're really, really wrong. The New York Times' defense is, well, we were wrong. Um, but but we really didn't we didn't have that malice ag- against her. So even though we were wrong, we shouldn't be held responsible. It's 
you know, they, they might have the better argument under the law, but the facts are not very favorable to them. And it's going to be interesting to see whether or not this case might work its way up to the United States Supreme Court, because there's a lot of people who think media outlets have gotten away with way too much over the last couple decades with re- Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. I was listening to, to Mike's newscast, and he was talking about the, the Olympics, which are now underway, and all these different protocols that they put in place to stop the spread of COVID. And they've got the Olympic bubble, and Olympic athletes are only able to go in certain places, and the interactions are limited and all these sort of things. There is this story is kind of ironic because even in an age of COVID and even with all these other restrictions that are out there, the estimates are that Olympic organizers in China will be providing the athletes with about 150,000 condoms. Those are the num- I understand these numbers are staggering. Those were the number of condoms that were provided to the athletes in Tokyo last summer. Um, it, it works out. The estimates in, in China being China, they're not saying exactly how many condoms that they're, they're giving the Olympic athletes, but the best estimates are it appears to be about 50 condoms per athlete. 50 condoms per athlete. Now, that raises a couple questions. First of all, if you're going to burn through the Olympics last, like, maybe two weeks total, I mean, if you're going to burn through, you know, 50 condoms per athlete, I mean, where are you going to get the energy to, you know, to compete in the games? That would be question number one. But I guess question number two is there, there is this irony, I guess, that we're in this COVID world where, all right, we've got these bubbles and we've got the robots that are going to be serving the food and we don't want people to have any close-up interaction. But here, 50 condoms apiece because my, my guess is, I I still don't think that there's any way that they figured out how to use those condoms and and not be able to get in close contact. I mean, I don't don't think there's too much social distancing going on if you find yourself in need of the condoms. I'm just saying. So, again, it's one of those ironies. There was a story on uh, the Channel 12 news last night that, that caught my attention. If you're a regular listener to the program, you know we talk a lot about my frustrations and your frustrations with the out-of-control crime rate in the city of, of Milwaukee and the fact that you've got the, the chattering class. The politicians give it lip service but don't do anything about it. The district attorney definitely doesn't do anything about it. The court system doesn't do anything about it. And the, the people of the community they are the sheep they are just you know people who live in these particularly in the high crime areas but it's in the suburbs now too you are the sheep you are out there just waiting to be sheared um, at the expense, uh, at your expense, by the, these criminals. UWM issues the story that their University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Police Department, that this is their response to cars being stolen off the lots at, at UWM. Their response is they're offering free steering wheel locks for students, faculty, or staff who own Kias or Hyundai vehicles. And, and look, I have no problem, I guess, with that. If you want to give them free steering wheel locks, the people that know stuff about this tell me all that does is delay a car thief by about 15 seconds but but to me it's like giving up i mean do i have problems with giving people the the club or the lock or whatever no i i don't but but shouldn't we be concentrating on the underlying problem which is that you have again all these people that are out there that are, are stealing cars right and left 
I mean, yeah, if you, you give them the club, that that's fine. Maybe it slows them down a little bit. But isn't the underlying problem that you have people out on the street stealing the cars? And maybe that should be the the focus of it. Let's let's double, let's triple the patrols. Let's you know put in more monitors when we see this suspicious activity. Let's act on it, and then let's pressure the district attorney to try to do something about it. So I just raised that question. But anyhow, here's here's the interview that they had on Channel 12 last night. The woman's name is LaPorche Barham, and she posted. She posted a, a video on Facebook that has gotten a ton of attention. Um, it, it's a lengthy video. It, it's like 30 minutes long. And you know, here's apparently you know, what happened to her. This was, this was yesterday, 10 in the morning. She lives by Marshall High School. And, and John Marshall High School, I believe, was where the Uber driver was carjacked a couple days ago, and then they saw the stolen car the following day, and there was the high-speed chase that led to the stolen car going airborne and destroying all those cars in 76th and, and Villard at the car lot. So th- this is apparently an area where, all right, all these things happen. So here's her story. 10 o'clock in the morning, she says she's pulling out of her driveway, and she notices a reckless driver swerving back and forth on her street more than a block away. So you're in, she's looking in the rearview mirror, and she's going, oh, my, what, what's going on here? She says that, all right, she immediately pulls her car to the side. Let, let me, I'm going to get out of this way, this guy's way, and let him go by. She thinks the reckless driver spotted her maneuver and decided to talk to her, uh, to target her. She said, okay, after that, she said the driver swung the car and started driving directly at her car. She said the person pulled off. All right, but she starts moving and then apparently came back and targeted her vehicle once again. She said she had to jump the curb to get onto someone else's property to avoid getting hit. She said after the second encounter, the driver and the passengers in this car stopped, laughed at her, and then stared at her before pulling out again. She says... Um, She's confident the people in the car are members of the Kia Boys, a group of juveniles and teens in Milwaukee who steal cars simply to take them on reckless joyrides, posting videos of the crime on social media. The vehicle, or Stolies, isn't that clever, of choice for the groups are Kia and Hyundais that have been stolen at an exponential race rate. And so she, she gets hacked off because she's run off the road by these punks in the car. So she goes on the video, and it's apparently it's 30 minutes long, but she's saying things like, I'm telling you all right now, get your blankety-blank, although she doesn't blankety-blank, kids. You know, it's kind of a message to that. She says, uh, this was a threat to me using a whole vehicle. She says, but I would have been a person that had been wrong if I would have just ended up shooting or killing these kids. This blank is not okay. It's 10 o'clock in the morning, and they're trying to take my whole life, you know, with a a car. And she says, look, I can advocate for this community a 1,000 times a day, do everything to put positive stuff in Milwaukee for what? We can't even come together to do what's right. Reporting your own children, you know, is doing this stuff. Do something with these kids, man. So that's kind of her message to the parents that, you know, you need to, you know, participate and so I mean she goes on and on but this is the story about a woman who is almost run off the road 
you know, run off the road at 10 o'clock in the morning as she's pulling out her driveway by a bunch of punks who are probably driving a stolen car. But the point of the matter is they're, they're just they're having fun by running her off the road and trying to terrorize her. And that experience is no different than the experience that I think lots and lots of people have. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. See, here's where I want to go with this. I think I think that when society breaks down, when a problem gets so out of hand that people lose confidence in in the system and lose confidence in the fact that the system can take care of the problem, that's that's when you start having people take matters into their own hands. Now this lady says, "Hey, I you know, I if I would have shot him, I would have been it wrong." But you know, here's she's threatened. Um, you know, she's she's essentially run off the road by by these punks, and you know the parents aren't doing anything about it. The system does almost nothing about it. And what concerns me about where we are is I think people are starting to get to that that point. The and you know we've talked about this on a regular basis where you you come out and what was the story the other day on um, right by Mitchell Street where you know people come out and that they find like all the cars in a particular street that are parked in front of people's homes the windows are all blown out and people have gone through the cars looking for money the the out of control number of car thefts the reckless driving that is endangering people I think law abiding citizens have pretty much are at a point now where they want to say enough is enough, and they are looking for concrete answers, not midnight basketball or things of the like. My concern, and I am not advocating this, but my concern is if if law enforcement and the court system can't get a handle on this in 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 the very near future, and I'm talking about like yesterday, I think you're going to see people's frustrations continue to boil over, and I think you're going to start to see people who might decide to start in their own way fighting back against the, these thugs and these punks that are acting with complete and total impunity. That is not a good thing to do, but it's what happens when the system completely and totally breaks down. And I don't, I guess, hear a sense of urgency among I don't know, the people that could maybe do something about being willing to do something. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. In many respects, it, it, I think people are getting to the point, kind of like that old movie Network, where you had the character that goes on television and says, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Are we getting to that point in southeastern Wisconsin when it comes to the reckless driving, the car thefts, the out-of-control, the carjackings, the out-of-control recklessness on the roads? 855-616-1620, we discuss. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I, I just, it is staggering. I just pulled up the numbers uh, just of car thefts that you know the Milwaukee Police Department has this website this is just Milwaukee all right last year car thefts in the city of Milwaukee 10,479 10,000 that was up from 4,500 the year before 10,000 is unthinkable all right well we're ahead of last year's total so far this year and what we're in the first week in February 
there have been 920 cars stolen. That's a lagging indicator. There's actually more than that. This time last year, there were 846 cars stolen. So we have almost 100 more cars stolen. I'm sorry, 851. So there's almost 75 more cars stolen this year than last year that set an all-time absolute record. So, look, here, here's the problem. It's not getting better. Now, this is just car theft. Now, the story we were talking about is the lady who was you know, targeted by the reckless drivers here. Jeff, we're never going to get a handle on the senseless rampant crime in Milwaukee as long as elected leaders won't accept the problem lies within a limited number of habitual criminals, often youth, who must, regardless of age, be punished as a deterrent. These aren't misguided youth. They're calculating dangerous criminals who pose real and increasing dangers to innocent law-abiding people. Yes, that, that's exactly what is going on here. Here's a text, Jeff. I saw a Facebook video from a passenger in the Jeep that crashed. These kids have no shame or fear of punishments. I think inevitably some citizens are going to start to push back. Yeah, Jeff, I think that we're getting close to reaching the point of no return when citizens start dealing with criminals themselves because the district attorney and the courts will not. I'm afraid we're within spitting distance away from this point. I am too. And I mean, I want people to understand that the purpose of this segment isn't to encourage people to take the law into your own hands. It's not at all. But it's to send up these warning flags to people throughout the system that I think there's a lot of feeling around here that the system has broken down, that the the criminals are out of control. And, you know, you see that. Whether it's, what have we just talked about this week? Whether it's the, the small stuff, the people driving around without the license plates on the cars, whether it's the reckless driving, whether it's the carjackings, whether it's the shootings happening, you know, in the mornings, in the afternoons. It's just, you, you take your life into your hands when you go out on the street. And the citizens, I think at some point in time, you're going to get to the point where you either say, all right, we, we give up on a community because the crime is so out of control, or alternatively, if we're not going to give up on the community, we're going to take matters into our own hands and we're say we're not going to allow ourselves to be victimized by a bunch of 14 or 15 or 16-year-old punks who have decided that for a matter of fun, they're going to run a woman off the street, or they're going to stick a gun in the face of an Uber driver, or they're going to carjack somebody who's trying to pick up some food with three kids in the back of their car. I mean, it's one situation after another out there, and we are, I think, very close to this tipping point. And I don't hear the people who want to be mayor talking about this. I don't hear them calling out the catch and release problems that we've had over the years, which have led to this. All I hear is, well, we need more social services. Well, okay, yeah, yeah, we need more social services. I don't have a problem with that. But social services right now are not the solution to 15-year-olds who should be in school and aren't, who think it's cool to be driving down the street, running people off the road. And law-abiding, honest citizens think are quickly reaching the point where they're ready to say enough is enough. So that's why law enforcement needs to wake up, the chattering class needs to wake up, the court system needs to wake up, and we need to get a handle on this. It's Lord of the Flies out there in some respects, and honest, law-abiding citizens should not have to put up with that. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. 
Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Okay, this is just an odd story. Remember the story the other day about the, the semi-truck that led police on a chase on, on I-43 on, on Sunday? Um, what happened is about 7.30 in the evening, an Illinois-based trucking company reported that one of its drivers had missed their drop-off location. Squads attempted to pull the truck over near Locust Street on I-43, but the driver continued. During the pursuit, the 27-year-old driver struck an unoccupied truck on the right shoulder of the interstate. Bayside police deployed stop sticks near Brown Deer Road, which deflated the truck's front tires. The truck continued driving. So you hit a car, a truck by the side of the road. The stop sticks have, have taken out your front tires. The truck continued until Grafton police also stop sticks, deflating the vehicle's remaining tires, and finally causing the driver to stop near Bonnewell Road in Mequon. The driver was not under the influence of drugs or alcohol. The sheriff's office said it won't request charges at this time because the vehicle wasn't stolen and the drug test results were negative. Okay, let me back up here then. Okay, he's it's not a stolen truck. And the, the guy's not drunk or high, but he leads police on a, a 10, 15-mile chase. He smacks into another truck. He keeps going despite the fact that they've got half his tires that are flattened out. Um, the owner of the truck says, well, we hired their guy seven months ago. He said he tested positive for COVID, wasn't feeling well, and didn't realize what he was doing during the incident. Oh, okay, well, there's there's all sorts of things. You know, when you're out on the road and, and you get stopped, for example, for speeding, my guess is there's a lot of times you say, I wasn't feeling really well, and I, I, didn't, I didn't realize I was going this fast. In this case, a guy driving a semi didn't realize that he'd smacked into another semi, that he'd run over a bunch of stop sticks, that there were a bunch of cops following him trying to get him to pull over, and he just kept driving, and they're not going to issue him a ticket because... Well, he didn't realize what he was doing during the incident. Um, I think maybe this is one of those where charges would be appropriate. My advice is don't try this at home. Just saying. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. This week's sponsor for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase is its presenting sponsor, Great Midwest Bank. From Madison to Milwaukee and all parts in between, Great Midwest Bank is your simply local equal housing home renovation lender. Contact them at 888-485-4400 or visit them at greatmidwestbank.com. All right. Um, we talked earlier this week about the, the situation at Rufus King High School um, last week. You had five people who were shot in the parking lot at Rufus King after a basketball game. The the details are are still a little bit sketchy, but what it sounds like is that there was a huge fight around 7.30 on Tuesday night. Okay, Um, What happened is, while the officers were en route to the, the fight, um, they got reports that the fight had upgraded to a shooting. Apparently what happened is there were two females who got into a fight outside the school during the school's basketball game. A large group gathered to watch the fight, to watch the fight. So here you have, again, this deal where we, we've got this fight. So instead of people breaking it up, 
oh, no, everybody stands around and watches and undoubtedly encourages the fight in some respects. So then what happens is the word gets out there's a fight. Apparently an adult male who has some association with one or more of the people involved shows up with a gun, and at 7.45 p.m., three female victims, ages 15, 16, and 17, arrive at the hospital reporting non-fatal injuries from the gunfire. About 10 o'clock at night, two additional female victims, one age 15, one age 20, arrive at a different hospital, also reporting gunshot injuries. All five victims were injured when the shots were fired outside the high school. And as I always make this point, in this particular case, you've got five people that turn up in the emergency room after being shot. Two 15-year-olds, a 16, a 17-year-old, and a 20-year-old. The the thing you always need to remember, though, is any time there is a shooting, it's but for the grace of God that it's not a homicide. You know, any time you get hit with a bullet, you know, it, if you if you survive, you know, that's great, but there's always that chance that you are not going to survive. So this could have been another mass murder than, you know, in the city of Milwaukee. But instead, it, it's five people that are at the emergency room. And, of course, the, you know, the, the police chief, Jeff Norman, who's a really good guy, you know, he's upset with this. A lot of the, you know, politicians are just frustrated that, you know, a fist fight turns into a shooting and it's adults who end up escalating this. But this has brought back the conversation about police in schools. Out in Madison, the progressively educated educators at Madison decided we're going to remove the the police. Let's get the cops out of the schools because we don't want the little darlings to be traumatized by the presence of police officers. So they got the kids out of the schools, and now surprise follows surprise. They've had more instances of violence in the schools. Well, okay, Milwaukee is is no different. For those of you who are keeping score at home, at the end of the 2020 school year, the Milwaukee Public School Board of Directors ended the 15-year contract that MPS had with the Milwaukee Police Department. So they, they, they said, okay, we don't want the cops in the schools anymore because, well, some kids might be uncomfortable having police in the schools. Okay, so now you have a situation where, okay, there's not cops in the schools, and what happens? Well, you have a shooting in the parking lot. Now, this is admittedly after school. It's at a base. It's at a basketball game, and some people are now saying, "Well, maybe we don't need the cops in the schools, but maybe we should have them at the basketball games." Our number is eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It was pure insanity to take police officers out of the schools in the first place, especially in areas heavily crime areas where there is high crime the presence of police does a couple things having police in the schools number one provides somebody that's there that can respond quickly when there is a situation number two maybe it provides a bit of a deterrent and number three it helps if you have police officers in the school it helps normalize and humanize those police officers so you've got kids that get to see the police officer who's in the school as a school resource officer and get to see him or her on a daily basis. So your only contact with 
I don't know, the police, it isn't when the police are rolling up after there's been a, a shooting or rolling up after the stolen car going 95 miles an hour has careened through an intersection and hit and seriously injured or killed people. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I understand we have all these politically correct and these fashionable ideas. Let's get the kids out. Let's get the cops out of the schools. And I'm not suggesting necessarily that if you had police officers in the schools it would have stopped the shooting at rufus king on on tuesday night in the middle of the basketball game but at the same time can't we recognize that these ideas of pulling the cops out of the school it was a bad idea it was a bad idea at the time it's a bad idea today and it needs to be rethought like right away 855-616-1620 that's the accident mortgage talk and text line we discuss in a moment Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I, I said this at the time. I said it about the decision in Madison. I said it about the decision at MPS. Pulling school resource officers out of the schools because some of the precious little darlings were uncomfortable having police in the schools was a staggeringly dumb idea. To me, there's all sorts of values to having these school resource officers. Part of it is as a deterrent to criminal behavior. Part of it is we have somebody on scene in case there, there's the need for a quick response. But, but the other part of it is just it helps humanize police officers. So if you have kids, they're, they're only intera- so the only interaction the cop, that the kids have isn't when, uh, again, they're in a situation where the police are responding to a shootout or a, or a car theft or a reckless driving incident. It, it helps humanize police. And if we're trying to build police-community relations, I think there is a value to that as well. Now, to his credit... Acting Mayor Cavalier Johnson, he says, well, I think a proper partnership between MPD and MPS is just. That's that's his response. And I don't know what he's talking about when he says proper partnership. But, but yeah, pulling the police out of schools, why? And, by the way, to the couple people who are texting me about, well, the, the Rufus King shooting, you know, happened a- after after hours. Yeah, I, I understand all that. But that's not the point of the conversation. The point of the conversation is, why wouldn't we have police in schools, especially given all the stuff that goes on in schools and surrounding schools? 855-616-1620. Jeff, we had an officer in our school. I think it's important for both elementary and middle schools. Helps humanize the police and helps build trust and respect for them. Um, Jeff, if if uh, they don't want police security, then schools and MPS should send out their administrative staff to see how successful they are and then watch how fast they call the police when they get scared of the problem kids. Jeff, you're right. The police were removed from schools as part of the We Hate Cops program. MPS wants it both ways. Um, I they need the police well yeah i think you need the police and i think that helps make the students feel safe 855-616-1620 okay let's start with jim and cedarburg hi jim hey jeff how you doing good what do you think hey jeff you know over at yeah jeff over at king they never had um police officers in the building they have the mps security force there they've got at any given time They've got five or six security aides in there to handle in-house disruptions by the kids. Never a violent school, Jeff. The actions that took place the other day were outside of school hours, out in the community. That's a community... 
Responsibility well, it was a basket. It was a school basketball, but it was a school basketball game. I mean, it was students that got into a fight outside. And, and as I said, Jim, and I, I understand. Security staff to address that. Well, they didn't do a very good job of it. They didn't do a very good job of it. Well, Five people got shot. Security doesn't go. The security. <laughs> I'm sure there was security outside of the building at the time. Well, they didn't do a very good job. Five people got shot. They had to call the cops. Five. By the time the cops got there, five people were shot. Well, why? What is your objection to having well, police long, officers in a school? How long five shots on a gun job? How long did it take to pull five shots? So your answer is just to let this go on. How did they? Your answer is to let it go on. What was going to happen? Tell me, tell me, Jim, what your objection is. What is your objection to? What is your objection, Jim? What is your objection to not to not having police in schools? Tell me why that's a bad idea. They have a security force. They have. We don't need it. Are you just talking about? Are you just talking about? Are you just talking about Rufus King? Are you talking? Are you talking about Rufus King? Are you talking about all the schools? We we don't need them in Rufus King, or we don't need them anywhere. I didn't say you don't need them anywhere, Jeff. There might That's be. That's my question. Too. I mean, what did Milwaukee have at one time before private schools came along? About 15 comprehensive high schools. And out of those 15, maybe, maybe three or four had SROs in them. You don't need them. They have a security force. The security well, force does a very good job in MPS of, of getting information from kids and preventing plenty of incidents from happening. You don't need to pay a cop. I mean, here you're talking about not enough police in the community out there to patrol the roads. Well, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? Take 18 of them off the road and start staffing the schools, too? Well, no. Yeah, we we well, no. Now, Jim, thank, thanks, Jim. You and I could not disagree more. And, and keep in mind, they, they, had deals <laughs> with the, they had deals with the police officers until a year and a half ago. And I think you had the security forces that were out there. This, now, it's, now it's a waste of money to have cops in the schools. Okay, thanks for the call, Jim. Appreciate it. Hope you don't get in a position where you get to make some of these choices. And this idea that, well, it, it was out in the community. Well, it, it, was, it was in the school parking lot. This was, this was a fight that started between kids. And, and I guess this, this idea that you don't need to have police there. I still haven't heard a good ex- reason and justification as to why you wouldn't want to have police on on the scene. You know why you wouldn't have the resources. Here's a here's somebody from here's Jill from Dousman. Jeff, absolutely, resource officers need to be in the schools. I worked at a school for 39 years. It was only a plus having them in the building. I mean. What is the downside to having them there? Debbie in Milwaukee. Debbie, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you today? Good. What do you think? I used to work at Rufus King High School many, many, many years ago. And, yes, we did have security there. And But we also got involved with the students to the point that it never really escalated to that point. Were there fights? Absolutely. Did I break them up? Oh, yeah. Did I get hurt? Yes, I did. It never escalated to this. It boils down to um, we're in different times right now. Um, it's not like that 20 years ago where we found something. And in fact, I got hurt during one of their fights. These girls broke 10 sets of arms, I swear to God. But bottom line is that it's not like that 20 years ago or 5 years ago or 10 years ago. It's time we realize that things have changed to the point. We have parents that simply don't care. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I do believe Rufus King is still a college-bound. Yes, correct? I think so. Yep, I believe so. Okay. Well, all right. So, anybody that sees what's going on in this world, 
um, people coming walking into the schools and shooting schools and everything else, security or not, they're a perk, okay? They're definitely a perk. They can find out what's going on and hopefully defuse the majority of it. But there are still that outside influence out there that's going to overcome this, and you're going to have a problem. And that's where the police officers come in. They have that outside resource. We do not, or they do not. I shouldn't say we. I don't work there anymore. But I'm saying right. that's where it, there's, a, there's a difference. And honestly, if I'm having my child, especially a young child, come in there, and if I see a police officer there, I'm going to thank God he's safe. Well, right. It makes them more safe. You know, you raise a really, you raise a really interesting point, Debbie. Because I mean, I, I can remember over the last several years, you've had these. We've had multiple stories about at, at some of the high schools, uh, a fight breaks out, and then because of social media and people's got cell, people have cell phones, and so next thing you know, people in the fight are calling you know, relatives or whatever who are descending on the schools, and the fight st- is, is escalating and stuff. You're right. It's it's a different time. People are are bringing guns to what maybe was a fist fight 20 25 years ago and five people are getting shot admittedly this was after the basketball game but i, I still just to me i had it makes no sense to me why anyone would oppose having police officers in the school system if nothing else to provide a deterrent or maybe early intervention if you ever need it I agree. Now, we also, I also work for a principal. I don't know who the principal is that is over there, but this principal, whenever there was an outside, um, it could be a dance, it could be a sporting goods, it, it could be anything like that. He made sure that the district knew about it and that he had such a good rapport with the district that there was no squam. You walked outside that building, there was at least four or five squads that were actually circulating the, uh, the building. Um, when they what, what does it what does it there. say though you know what does it say though that you need you, you have a basketball game or a dance and and you need to have this is a larger question you need to have squad cars circling the area because you you're worried about shootings or carjackings or whatever it it's it, that's kind of a rhetorical question i mean it, does, it doesn't say much about what's going on <laughs> well you know when again when back in the day um, we didn't allow at that. <laughs> I'm going to start aging myself here. We didn't allow these. Um, what were they called? These little things that you uh, you didn't text. What were they? Oh my God! It's oh. been a while. Uh, um, good Lord. Um, the cell phone. You're talking about cell phones pager. and the texts and things like the pagers. Yeah. Got it right. Pagers. Yeah. And when these kids entered the building, they were not allowed to have pagers there. It was bottom line. If you had a pager, it was taken away. Parents got it, or we gave it back to them at the end of the school day. Um, now you've got your cell phones. All you got to do is get on a phone and right. Um, right. make that one phone call, and you've got how many people from the outside that don't even belong to that school and are of age coming there and joining in on the problem. Right, exactly. Hey, thanks for calling, Debbie. I'm, somehow. No, oh, no, you're, 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 no, you're, you're just exactly. You, you are exactly right. And and look, and, and I'm not suggesting that putting police back in the schools like they were until a year and a half ago, where as part of this anti-cop movement, you had well, we don't want the students to be traumatized by the presence of, of police officers. They they were in the schools. You know, Madison is going through the same thing, and they're having all sorts of recriminations. I guess uh, this all goes. Goes back to my basic philosophy of like broken 
windows, law enforcement, and stuff like that. I believe in flooding high-crime areas with cops. I believe in having a very, very visible presence of police officers. And I believe in having cops in the schools as a deterrent and as a first responder. And I haven't heard any good arguments against that. Back with more in just a couple minutes. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Let, let me give you some context on what I think was one of Melissa's lead stories during the newscast. Uh, today, the Wisconsin Supreme Court refused to hear a lawsuit that had been filed last November by Republican gubernatorial candidate Rebecca Clayfish challenging the legality of of drop boxes. Now, let, let me just put some perspective into what this case is and what it isn't. Normally in the law, th- there is a process. You file a case in circuit court. It's adjudicated in circuit court. The loser of the case then gets to go to the appellate court, And then, if you don't like the results there, whoever loses in the appellate court gets to ask the state Supreme Court whether it will take their case to hear. State Supreme Court doesn't have to take every case, so they they pick and choose. Now, since the last election, there have been huge questions about the legality of of different things. Because of the pandemic, you, you had clerks who sometimes acting on their own, sometimes acting with guidance from the state election board, decided that they were going to make, just I don't want to say make exceptions to law, but change the way that things were, were done in an effort to make it more easy for people to vote in, in a pandemic-inspired world. Some of those things may or may not be legal. For example, the, the question of drop boxes they may or may not be legal. They're not specifically banned in Wisconsin law, but they're not specifically authorized by Wisconsin law. So that then begs the question of, okay, can, can you do it or, or or not? And we're talking about the drop boxes that you put up at various locations outside of libraries or whatever, so that people, instead of putting, for example, a stamp on their absentee ballot and sending them in, they, they put them in, in the lockbox. Okay, I personally... And I know I've irritated some of you with my position. I really don't have a problem with the lock boxes, I, 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 with the drop boxes. I, I just, I don't. To me, if I get an absentee ballot and I can put a stamp on it and put it in a post box, office box and the mailman picks it up and brings it to the clerk's office, why is that any different than me putting, again, the, the ballot in a, a properly sealed and maintained drop box outside of a clerk's office? But, but be that as it may, it is unclear whether the law allows that or, or not. And as a matter of fact, Waukesha Circuit Judge Michael Boren has ruled that the law doesn't allow for this, that it's prohibited. That order, and Boren had, had put in a, an injunction saying, okay, we can't use drop boxes anymore. The state Supreme Court has stepped in, and they've put that ruling on hold because you've got a primary election coming up in February. But they've said, we're going to rule on that. We, we will issue a ruling on that, and, and that's appropriate. Well, anyhow, Rebecca Clayfish, she in November filed a separate lawsuit challenging the legitimacy of the drop boxes, all right? And I think she's got what we would call standing because she's running for governor. So she says, look, I want this decided. And she asked the state Supreme Court to, to just handle this. 
don't make me go to circuit court. Don't make me go to appellate court. Just you, you guys handle this and decide because we need a decision on this. And what the Supreme Court said today on a four to three vote, it, it's really a procedural decision. They said, no, we're not going to hear Rebecca Clayfish's thing directly. Um, if she wants to file this, she's go, go back to circuit court and file it. But at the same time, we, we do have other drop box, case, box cases that we're going to decide. So this this decision, to me, it's it's mostly procedural. It really has nothing to do with the merits of drop boxes or not. And I, I, I don't know what the Supreme Court's going to ultimately decide to do on this. As I kind of intimated when I was talking to Senator Ron Johnson at the start of the program today, one of the frustrations I have had over the last couple years has been the fact that nobody can get their act together when, when it comes to what the law is with regard to elections in Wisconsin. And we've had a year and a half to do it. There's all these questions. Are things like democracy in the park, is that ballot harvesting that's not legal in the state, or is it legal? Okay, we should have had an answer to this. And it's been frustrating to me that the court system hasn't addressed this aggressively, but it's even been more frustrating to me that the legislature has not been able to get its act together along with the governor and and come to some sort of resolution on some of these questions. The one issue, and I talked about this in the 12 o'clock hour, that I think everybody, Republicans and Democrats, or at least most people, should be able to agree on is the ability to count absentee ballots when they come in as opposed to having to wait till after the polls open or the polls close. As Senator Johnson was saying, and it's a legitimate point, you know, in some of the big cities, Milwaukee in particular, what happens is they get all these absentee ballots, tens of thousands of absentee ballots, sometimes more. You know, years ago it wasn't a big deal when most people actually went down to the polls and voted. So if you had a state law that said, okay, you can't begin counting absentee ballots until after the polls open, it's no big deal because there weren't that many absentee ballots. Nowadays, lots and lots of people vote absentee. So what happens in in Milwaukee, for example, is you have this huge number of absentee ballots that are coming there and they're sitting in the clerk's office, but they can't be counted under state law until after the polls open. But as a practical matter, because there's only so many poll workers, what that means is they really don't start counting the absentee ballots in earnest until after the polls have closed. So they've got tens of thousands of absentee ballots that they have to count and they just physically can't get the numbers in in a timely fashion. So that's why what happens is people go to bed at 11.30 at night, Scott Walker is the governor because he's got a lead of 45,000. And then Milwaukee comes in and, you know, Milwaukee goes 80-20 for Tony Evers. And there's enough votes that swing the election. And everybody looks at this and says, well, this is crooked. There must be something funny here. Well, no, there's nothing funny. It's just that. If it's just that these ballots weren't counted in an appropriate fashion, this is something everybody should agree with. You know, once these ballots come in, you know, uh, put put in whatever safeguards you want, but they should be able to feed them into the machines. They should be able to have them there so that they're ready to be immediately tallied. I'm not saying count them before election day, but get them ready to be counted. Have them fed into the machines or whatever, so you don't have, oh my gosh, it's 9 o'clock at night, the polls are closed, and we're still looking at having to count 100,000 ballots that are come in. Count them as they come in, or at least, I'm not saying count, I mean 
open them, process them as they come in. You talk to clerk of courts all across the state, Republican-leaning districts, Democrat-leaning districts, and everybody will tell you, yeah, this is something that, that just it makes sense to do. And like I say, in some of the smaller communities, it's not really a problem because they don't get swamped and overwhelmed with the absentee ballots. But in some of the larger areas, like Milwaukee, they, they do. And I guess my frustration, I'm just kind of up on my soapbox right now, I acknowledge. My frustration has been we've, we've had a couple years. We know what some of these problems are, and the legislature and the governor haven't been able to get their act together to work out compromise solutions to take care of some of these things so now we're, we're depending on on the courts and the courts you know they're they're getting around to things in their own due time but you know we, we've got elections coming up all this stuff should have been taken care of last summer there, there should have been an agreement where you sit Tony Evers and you the Republican leadership down in the room and we say look we understand you've got your political issues and you think this benefits your side and yeah we think this benefits our side let's work out some common sense compromises and let's put all this stuff behind us and then let's go out and let's compete and try to get our voters to the polls and may the best candidates or the candidates that get the most votes win just saying back with more in just a minute this is jeff wagner wtmj welcome back to jeff wagner on wtmj still stumped what to get your sweetheart this valentine's day well we can help our very own Steve Scafidi will send your loved one a personalized video message. He can sing, he can dance, he can even recite a poem. Personalized Valentine's Day messages from Steve Scafidi himself with all the proceeds benefiting Best Buddies Wisconsin. Request yours today at WTMJ.com or text the word CARES, C-A-R-E-S, to 855-616-1620. That's WTMJ CARES, sponsored by Gruber Law Offices and Welkie's Milwaukee Florist. All right. Not surprising at all. If you If there were ever a bunch of people group of people that that deserved each other it would be michael avenetti and stormy daniels now um michael michael avenetti if you will recall he is the i mean sort of the d-list celebrity lawyer who was involved remember one of his high profile clients was Stormy Daniels, whose name was what Stephanie Clifford, I think that's her name, and she was she was one of the people who had the the kind of one night stand, or at least alleged she had one of the one night stands with Donald Trump back before he was the president of the United States. And um, what what happened is she retained him for some of his lawsuits for lawsuits and stuff like that. Um, he. He, um, at least according to her, ripped her off. Um, he claimed that he was entitled to a percentage of her $800,000 book advance. And, you know, she said, no, he wasn't. She said that, you know, he, he stole money from me, and prosecutors um, charged him. Evan Eddy was charged with stealing $300,000 from Stormy Daniels and lying to cover up his actions. He decided... Um, he decided to represent himself and take some free legal advice from a recovering lawyer here. If you are an attorney and you are in trouble, it is, I was going to say it is almost never a good idea to represent yourself, but I'm not even sure about putting the word almost in there. It's never a good idea to represent yourself, but he chose to 
represent himself in this. And, you know, that, that led to apparently it was just great courtroom theatrics. It was federal courts that don't televise this. But he and his former clients, Stormy Daniels, ended up getting, you know, he cross-examined her and stuff like that. Um, he was charged with wire fraud and aggravated identity theft. He, he said, oh, this was just a fee dispute. Well, um, all right, the jury deliberated for a couple hours yesterday, and uh, they, they came back today, and he's now been convicted of stealing normally three, it's over $300,000 from his former client and one-time ally, ally Stormy Daniels. So it's, it's one of those deals where, I, you know, look, you, you never want to come down on the side of anybody that steals hundreds of thousands of dollars, and particularly on the side of somebody who as an attorney steals hundreds of thousands of dollars from their client. This whole thing, it was just, it was kind of a circus from the beginning, and you could always tell that, you know, whenever Mike, there, there's certain lawyers, when they just get involved with stuff, you, you know, you know, they're, they, they have their 15 minutes of fame, but you know it's never going to end well for them. And Michael Avenetti was one of these guys back a few years ago, and I probably even said it on the air, that you know he, he better enjoy his, his moment as a celebrity lawyer because you know it's going to break bad. In this case, it broke very bad thanks to you know the client that got him all the attention, Stormy Daniels. In any event, Michael Avenetti convicted of uh, multiple counts of fraud in federal court in connection with ripping off money from his client, Stormy Daniels. Just what can you say? Okay, when we come back, let's find out what John McCure has on his mind on Wisconsin's Afternoon News.